0: celebrate. Yeah, um, it's so awesome. Uh, you guys can be seated. Thank you guys so much for being here. Some of you guys who are regulars have noticed there's a bunch of like teenage faces wearing Gulfside side shirts that normally aren't here. Um, the, these are some of the students and uh, volunteers from Union Chapel in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, Claire, the girl who is up here singing that you may not have recognized, like she... When I was working at Union Chapel in Muncie, Indiana, she was like this big and beginning middle school. And she did the high school thing where like now she's up here. Um, but I've got to see, see these amazing um, people grow and, and develop over the years. And I'm so thankful that they're spending some time with us. They were supposed to actually be in Haiti, but due to the unrest, that trip got canceled. And they said, well, we're still going to go do something. So they've been down here being a blessing to our church and to our community for the last week. So, so can we just thank them? <laughs> awesome. All right. Today we are wrapping up our series on Colossians. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know, man, we are covering a huge amount of scripture every single day. And and today is probably like the largest out of the three weeks. We're going to knock out the majority of chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, and we're doing what's called a survey of the book, where we're just looking at the broad scope. We don't have enough time to to look through every meaningful point of every verse and dissect every piece, but we're pulling out some of the major themes of the book of Colossians, and we're working through that. So today, if you have your Bible, you can open to Colossians 3. Before we really get started, I'm going to start with with a story, and it's funny we have these extra high schoolers here today, but if you can think back to Your high school prom, your senior prom, the importance of that night and and all the things that went into it. It's like, especially for for the ladies, it is such an important night. Hundreds is spent on the dress. So many things are done in preparation and and me and my group of friends, we decided we were going to be all fancy and take a limo to prom and then we saw the bottom line of it. And we're like, okay, we're still going to be fancy. We're just going to, there's going to be a lot of us being fancy. We're going to fit as many people as we can possibly fit inside of this limo so that we can pay it off at the end of the day. I mean, people will be sitting up front with the driver if we have to. We're going to get this limo. And so everybody gets there and, you know, I have a group of friends who are organizing. They say, yeah, okay, Paul, you're in. And they're collecting as many people as we can so we can pay for this limo. And as we get there, I arrive with my girlfriend, my date, And across from me, I see my most recent ex-girlfriend. Now come on, this is awkward. This is terrible. Not only that, once we got in the limo, it's like there's a tiny aisle and she and her date were right across from us. I think the only reason they didn't murder me is they couldn't decide if they wanted to kill each other or kill me. And so I survived the night. It was terribly awkward the entire, like having these two people inside of this enclosed space the entire time, like I wanted to sweat or jump out of the window, like I just wanted to get away. Like these two things should not be coexisting in this small of a space together. It was a bad experience for me. And thankfully we were so cheap that we all arranged different rides home from prom because we couldn't afford the limo on the way back. <laughs> all right, so, so that, that's where we were in, in life. But, but th- this experience of these two, like, two things, and maybe you know this. Do you, do you know some people, two people, it's like they just can't be in the same room together? May, maybe it's you and someone else. I know, no, no, not you. You would never have a problem with anybody else, right? But, but there might be two people you know, they just can't be in the same room together. Some things, they, they just can't coexist. And, and today, this first section of chapter 3 in Colossians, it, it's dealing with this issue. That there's some things that they just can't coexist in the same space. And before we get into the meat of the text uh, of the the first half of chapter 3, I just want to go back. Last week we covered the beginning of chapter 3. And and it it opened chapter 3 with this short little statement. Since you have been raised to life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. We talked about that last week. But it's an important precursor because what it's about to get into, it deals with life transformation. The fact that sin and sexual immorality and greed and lust, it can't coexist in the same space as, as, the, as what God has called for us to do. Like, like character, um, gentleness, humility. The, these things, they can't coexist with pride. And when you try to put them into the same space, it's just not going to work. But, but this calling, it goes out to people who've made that decision. That that in their heart, in their mind, they've made a decision to ask God for forgiveness because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross and the power of of his resurrection that they believe they now have forgiveness and new life because of Jesus Christ. It's starting there and saying then, if this is who you are, then it gets into verse five and this is where we're going to pick up. I'm going to put the words on the screen for you starting at verse five. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. Now it starts off, and it starts identifying some things that that it says this can't can't coexist. This can't live inside of you anymore. This is your old nature, but it's something that needs to be pulled away. And, and I, I just want to make sure that we're clear on this, that if you try to clean up your life on your own, that, that, that if your first step isn't just giving your heart and your life to God, that as you try to clean up your life on your own, you're going to get extremely frustrated. You, you will feel powerless because you can't win these fights on your own. You're going to get exhausted, and you're going to eventually give in and give up. Being victorious o- over the sinful nature that is just natural to us, I'm going to tell you, that victory is found in Christ alone. And it starts with giving your heart, and when you give Him it, your heart, things internally begin to change, and then that changes what's on the external. So the starting point for all of this is, is first making that decision to follow Christ, since you have been raised to new life. And then the calling comes to put to death the sinful nature, the things that are earthly. And and, and as we look at this, especially the things that are listed, you know, some of the things that are listed, greed and lust especially, these are things that if you were on a car ride with them and they were sitting across for you, for most of your life you would probably feel pretty comfortable with this being part of your life. Our culture and our media, it it will tell you that greed and lust are not a bad thing. And it's, in fact, everywhere in advertising and media and everything. And it's just, it's commonplace. It's common culture. And so as scripture speaks against this, and I'll tell you this as well, that when you make a decision to follow Christ, there'll be something in your heart that begins to object. That when you see, okay, this greed is in my life. After you've made a decision and invited God into your life, you'll have this internal push of just saying, I don't think that's the way I'm supposed to live anymore. And this is really the working of of how holiness gets into your life. It starts by first giving your heart to to Him and He begins to change your taste for, for your behaviors for life and the way that you live. Transformation on the outside, it always has to start from what God did on the inside. And that's why you won't hear me up here railing against specific sins, but I'll continually call you to a deeper love with Christ because I know from experience that if you fall in love with Him, if you see Him for who He is supposed to be in your life, all of those behaviors, they will fall in check as you encounter His words and His teachings. And, and, and Scripture's pointing out and saying, okay, these, things, these are things that will be put to death in your life because you've made this decision. And life change will come and this is, this is the first point that I want to make as we look into this sec- section is that the resurrection of your new life starts with the death of your old life. And the death of your old life, it's going to begin in that decision point. If you've been seeking life transformation, if you've been wanting to see something different happen in, in your life, if you realize that your old ways are not opening new doors in your life, the starting point for you is making sure that your faith is set in Jesus Christ alone. And when you do that, he will empower you to begin to put these old habits, these addictions, these things that you felt like you were chained to, to put them to death. Some of us, and I know me included, that when I made the decision to follow Christ, I didn't even realize how many things that God was going to change in my life. I thought I was just saying yes to him. There, there was problems that I didn't even see as problems yet. But one of my first encouragements for you guys is if you're wanting to see things change. It starts with that, with that decision, that resurrection, that new life. It starts with a change in your old. It, C.S. Lewis, he illustrates it in a really way, and this is a little bit wordy, um, but man, I just think there's so much depth to it and so much truth to it. I want to read you this quote. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and it's yours because it is his, will not come as long as you were looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him, Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original, whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it's been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, favorite wishes and every day, and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with everything else thrown in. Th- this is the truth of li- life transformation. This is the truth of how to put to death these things that we know don't belong in our life. We set our eyes to Christ. We set our focus on him. A- and then the- these other things, they fall in line. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will and all everything else will be added, is what Jesus teaches. In the Christian life, it's not just about this denial of things or habits or greed. It's about being so fulfilled by Christ that you don't care about those things anymore. In verse 11, he, he wraps up this section of saying, you know, so put to death these sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality. And then he wraps up in verse 11, and he says, and in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. I think it's important to dial back to some context of who this was being written to. Because as we read that, and we read that section, we usually read it through our own filter of how difficult and how, how stained is my past? How hard will it be to get out of these habits that i formed? And when we think about the original audience that this was written to, especially the Greeks, there, there's some things about that culture that if you understand what the Greek men went through who are listening to this, you'll understand just, just how powerful Paul believed this truth to be. It, when we look into Xenophon's, um, uh, I forget Symposium by Socrates, we see a description of the normal tradition that grown men would go through in order to basically bribe the family of a young teenage boy and him himself to, to enter him into a, a relationship of sexual abuse. I mean, this was a very common, common thing in this culture, and especially as you go upper into the higher classes, it was every man had a relationship with it like this with a young boy almost. And so, so many of these Greeks who are hearing this written in church of saying, put behind you lust, put behind you sexual immorality, any sexual activity outside of marriage, they were looking back to their own experience as an 11 or 12-year-old boy where they were bribed with gift, gifts, resources, a- and taken away from their family and entered into this long-standing relationship where they were abused by a grown man. And so when we understand, okay, the, the temptations that were forced on them, the, the things, the sins that they feel like they committed, where they had no choice, and the things that they viewed as normal, this, this happens to every. Every young man, every man goes through a relationship like this in this culture. The sexual immorality that they, they experienced was horrible. And their pain and what they needed healing in is, is much more significant than, than what most of us have walked through. I mean, it, it, it gets to the point of, of rape was basically common amongst young men in this culture. And so as the Apostle Paul is writing this, and he's saying that sexual immorality has no place amongst you. These evil desires. I mean, the, these guys were saying, I don't know if I can get these thoughts, these experiences, and these urges out of my life. But, Christ is, but, but Paul is writing them and saying, Christ is enough. And no matter if you're from a Jewish background, or if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Greek, if you're from barbaric, if you're enslaved, or if you're a free person, none of that matters. It, in context of salvation and of getting out of these sinful habits. Whatever you've walked through, whatever your culture has pushed on you, Christ is enough. He is your all in all. When we understand the context of the pain that so many of these men walked through, it changes at least the way that I understand how powerful the work of Christ is in our life. And so if you have felt like your background has discredited you from doing anything for God, I want to remind you of the culture that the Greeks walked through. That, that if the Apostle Paul is writing them specifically saying, there is still a calling to holiness, there is still a calling to God using you, if he's writing it to them, God surely has a plan for you as well. No matter what your past has held. It doesn't matter what happened in the past anymore, you have a future. The resurrection of your new life, it starts with the death of our old life. And, and as he continues on, he gives some instructions to, to families, which we've covered in a lot of different messages before. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting with, with those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Never treat them harshly. And it goes into the section, and then we're going to jump to chapter 4, in, in verse 2 specifically, where Paul begins this small section on prayer. And I'm going to put verse 2 on the screen, but I'm going to read a little bit more for context. And it says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am a chains here. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Now, now he starts this off, and this is easy preaching right here. Devote yourselves to prayer. This is easy to understand. There's a call for us to be devoted to prayer. Uh, and then he lists about praying for others, asking people to pray for him, that that. Praying that God would give them opportunities and that they would grab a hold of them. Praying that He'd proclaim the message clearly. Which it's funny to me to read the Apostle Paul asking someone to pray for him that he would proclaim the message of Christ clearly. Because look at his track record. I mean, if you know things about him, from the time that he became a Christ follower, he was preaching the gospel boldly, he got to see God do incredible miracles. He stood before authorities and he preached with confidence. He was in chains and he would preach and sing and pray. I mean, why is he asking for help? If anyone should have a sense of I can do this, I can pull this off on my own. I don't need to ask God for help. I don't need to ask anyone else for help. I don't need to ask anyone else to pray for me because of my experience, because of what I've done, because of what I've seen God do. If anyone could have a sense of I've got a grip on this by myself, it was the Apostle Paul. But yet he, he's here and he's asking for people to pray for him. And and there's a calling to devote ourselves to prayer, but there's an example that's being set of saying, will you pray for me? And in the American context, unless someone is sick, it seems so hard to ask someone to to be praying for you. Especially saying, hey, will you pray for me that I would seize some opportunities to share the gospel and the truth of God with someone else? And, And I say this as just a bit of a push of encouragement that there's a mission, there are people around you that God is giving you opportunities to speak about his love to. And I understand it can be hard to step into those, but one of the first ways to step into that is with another Christian and say, hey, will you pray for me? I think God's giving me an opportunity to speak with this person. It might be talking with your spouse, with your family member, or a friend who goes here, but asking them for prayer. First of all, I believe that God will answer that prayer, and he will give, he will give you boldness and, and courage to step into that situation, but it also gives you accountability. Someone saying, hey, did you get to talk to them yet? There's so many benefits around prayer uh, other than the, the amazing truth that God actually hears you. The scripture says we can enter the throne room of grace with confidence knowing that he hears what we ask because, we, because Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and he appeals for us. That, that we can enter in and God hears us with confidence. That's amazing that God acts and he answers our prayers. But there's something else that, that it just changes us. When you are praying for something and you see God Answer that prayer, it does a tremendous amount for your faith. When you're praying and you're asking God for something and the answer is no, but he says, But I will comfort you and I will be with you as you walk through this struggle, it does a tremendous amount for your faith. Being devoted to prayer, it's not something that we do for God, it's something that we do for us. And the opposite of what happens is when we we give up on prayer, our works that are supposed to be of the faith, they become works of the flesh, and pride creeps in. When a Christian no longer seeks after God in prayer, but continues to serve, man, it starts to feel hollow and fake. We start to get angry when something doesn't go our way. When people mess stuff up, you know, the people that we're trying to serve with these acts of faith, when they start messing up our great act of Christian service because we've become hollow in our relationship with God because we no longer talk with them, people become a problem when we don't seek after God in prayer. There's so many benefits in our relationships with people around us when we're seeking seeking after him in prayer. And so this is the the second point that I kind of want to make on this is that prayer changes more than things, it changes you. We have to be devoted in prayer because it doesn't just change our situation. It doesn't just change our sickness. It changes who you are as a person when you seek after God in prayer, when we are devoted to prayer. When we enter into a a time where we're going to be sharing about God's love for someone and we know that people are praying for us as we do this. It changes the way that we enter that conversation because we know that God is going to act and answer on those prayers. The, the call to be devoted in prayer, it, I, I guess I'll, I'll illustrate it like, like this. I, I recently started um, spearfishing, which is kind of a crazy thing when I stop and think about it. I mean, my, my Indiana people, they laughed when I posted online that I was looking to buy a spear gun. Does anyone have one? It's a strange thing to people who don't live in Florida. Um, we, we, we go, you know, 60 feet underwater, and we go look for the fish on their territory, and I'm just learning the sport, and, and it's really cool as we go out, and we went out a couple weekends ago, and the guys I was with, they got fish. I did not, but they still let me and my family come to the fish fry afterwards, and we're hanging out together, and I'm not bitter about not getting fish at all, don't worry, and, and we're hanging out together, and we're eating this fish with all of our families and kids around, and one of the guys I'm talking with, He's been teaching me about spearfishing, and he was telling me about when he first started, about there's one dive where he, he almost died. And I'm internally like, don't tell the story in front of my wife. Don't tell the story in front of my wife. <laughs> um, he told the story anyway. And he's like, I, fr- I broke the biggest rule, a- and that one was my dive partner had, head c- had a head cold, and he's like, I can't dive today. And he's like, well, I'm going to dive anyway because I'm looking forward to this and I want to do it. And so he went scuba diving by himself, spearfishing his time was wrapping up, and his oxygen was running low. He got to under 500, which is when you're supposed to head up, but as he did that, he saw a big old fish swimming by, and he said, man, I know I should be heading up, but I'm going to take this fish, because I don't have any fish, and I want to get a fish. I understand the feeling, and and so he he spears this fish, and it's a little bit more than he can handle. I mean, he's got his gun, and he's trying to pull it in, and anytime he pulls the line, the line's slipping back out of his hands, because the fish is trying to swim away, And and the point of spearfishing is catching a fish. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to swim over to where the boat is. I'm going to get a hold of the anchor line. And then I'm going to pull myself up the anchor line. I'll give my spear gun to to Brian up on the boat. And he'll pull the fish in. And it's going to be good. And I'll have a fish. and, And my day will be over. And things will be good. He gets to the anchor line. And this was another mistake. Because you never get near anything that can tangle you. And so he gets to the anchor line. And he's holding on to a spear gun, which is attached to the fish on a line. And the fish starts going around him and tying him up in the anchor line. He's running low on air, and as the fish gets tighter and tighter around, it starts to knock his regulator out of his mouth. And he's still at least 20 feet underwater. Friends are up on the boat, you know, enjoying the sun, listening to country music, having a good old time. He's under here, and and he said, you know, panic set in. I pulled my knife to try to cut the line, and the fish came by, and it knocked the the knife out of my hand. And he said, I went through panic, and then I went through acceptance, and I realized this was how I was going to die. And he said, I just eventually just stopped and realized there's really nothing I could do. And then once my mind cleared a little bit, I started pulling on the line and then the fish broke the spear off the line. And it swam away and the tension went. I pulled the lines off. I got up to the top and I was okay. Now look, the goal of spearfishing is to get a fish. Well, but actually whenever you're scuba diving, whatever you're doing is the secondary goal. The first goal is to continue breathing. You you don't say, you know what, I'm going to just run out of air and I'm going to hold on to my fish because I really came down here to get a fish and I want to keep this fish. You realize, breathing is more important than this thing that I want to do. I I love the quote, it's it's no more possible to be a Christian without prayer as it is to be alive without breathing. There's so many things that draw us, that that we want to invest our time in. And we say, I need to do these things, and they're so busy. And it's like, it just chokes out our own personal spiritual dialogue with God. We, we never ask Him for anything. We, we never ask Him about anything. We never ask Him to speak to us, because we're so busy with the things that we feel like we should be doing, that it's almost like spiritually, like we're just slowly running out of air, until our Christian walk just becomes this thing that we do, where we go to a building and we leave a building. We, we might serve and do things, but it's like there's just spiritual dryness there. For us as Christians, we have to devote part of ourselves, part of our life to this relationship with God through prayer. Prayer changes more than things. It changes you. And it has to be part of the way that we live our life. We don't want to run out of air when we're underwater. We don't want to live a life that is void of prayer in the way that we live for God. Continuing on to the passage, he he begins to to wrap up. He gives us encouragement for, for prayer. He tells us to live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity, which is just, man, that's the heartbeat of, uh, uh, of Gulfside, is we want to make the most of every opportunity that God gives us. And then he begins to wrap up with, with, with this section of verses 7 through 18. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm about to read this, this section, and you're going to want to fall asleep. Don't fall asleep on me, because I promise you it's important, even if this particular section is not exciting to read because it's a lot of Greek names. I'm going to put the words up on the screen behind me as I read this. In chapter 4, verse 7 through 18, Tychicus will tell you the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, and he may encourage your hearts." He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are a bunch of guys who are all in prison together. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's the one who planted the church in Colossae that he's writing to, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm. Man, I love that picture. Wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heriopolis. Those are the other two churches that that he planted in the neighboring cities. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the doctor and Demas send their greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, "See see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, I read that section not to impress you with my ability to say Greek names, because it's really not all that great. But I read that section because I want you to know that if anyone had a right in ministry and life to just be a lone wolf, to just do it himself, to go be the boss, boss people around and leave, the Apostle Paul had that right. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, Paul's writing about confidence in his own flesh. And he says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. If anyone had a right to say, I have things together, it was him. He came from a family who was doing the right things with him when he was still an infant. He was was raised up in the faith. He was a man uh, amongst men in, in the Hebrew church. He had things together. But when we look at the style of life that the apostle Paul lived, we see that he was continually interconnected with so many people, investing in people, empowering people, letting people have access to his life. I mean, to just begin, I want to just kind of paint this picture. Uh, if we can go to the slide, we have the, the Apostle Paul a- as a person right here. And then we see Tychicus, actually the church in Colossae was the first thing that he referenced. And so we see this network, he's writing to churches in a city, most likely multiple house churches in the city of Colossae. And he says, I'm sending Tychicus to you, a- and he's going to come bring you some good news. A- and then he's, he's bringing a- a- along, oh, I forgot his name, uh, p- just put it up there for me, Onesimus, yes, thank you. Um, he's bringing Anisimus along wi- with him, For, he, who is our faithful and dear brother, and they will tell you everything that is happening there. My fellow prisoner, Ar- Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, and, and, and he's talking about this other prisoner, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've recee- received instructions about him as well. Jesus, who was called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews amongst us, and then he, he says, uh, Epaphras who planted the church and he references Epaphras a- and he, he continues on and, and, and says you know, he's wrestling in prayer with you guys. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you a- and for those at Laodicea which is a group of churches in Laodicea a- and in he- Heriopolis as well there's a group of churches there and our dear friend Luke the doctor, the author uh, of the Gospel of Luke and Demas they, they send their greetings as well. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea a- and to Nympha a- and the church in her house and after this letter's been written to you, read it to the Laodiceans, the Laodicean church. And Archippus, tell him to make sure he does the ministry that the Lord has given him. And, and we see this network just, I thought I was gonna lose my computer. We see this network just in this one letter. And if you go through each book, that, that each letter that the Apostle Paul has written, you see a closing like this each time. Because the way that the Apostle lived his life was he lived it in close fellowship with so many other believers. And, and so when he writes and he says, the church is like a body, And every one of us is an individual part. And when one piece is missing, the whole body suffers. We see this exemplified in the way that he did his life. But so many of us, in the way that we've lived our Christian life, which you don't have a Christian life and an outside life. You have one life. Most of us, the way we've lived our life, we've kind of kept walls up. And we've only given people limited access. Usually because someone hurt us in the past. And I know that when you get hurt at church, it hurts in a deeper more meaningful way that takes longer to heal. I get that. But we see throughout Scripture that we need relationships with other believers to live out this relationship that we have with God. Band, if you guys can start making your way up, I'm going to begin to close this thing. The Apostle Paul had numerous people that he was speaking into their life and they spoke into his. I wonder what your network would look like If I put your name in a bubble and put it right there on the middle of the screen, how many lines would be coming off of other believers? Because scripture actually says that that we're to love each other, even beyond those who are far from God. That we're supposed to take care of other brothers and sisters who are in Christ, above and beyond. So how many people are able to speak the truth of the word of God into your life because you've given them access to the inside many people in this church do you talk to on a, on a regular basis? And, and I ask this not, you know, once again, not to make you feel bad because I want you to step forward because when you go through a difficult time, when you need help from people at church, I want you to have those relationships that, that, that will be there to hold you up through difficult times. As I think about this message and, and just the different pieces of, you know, life transformation and, and prayer and this need for fellowship, there, there's one story that, that I think of. And it's uh, it's a lady in our church, and it kind of dials back. I'm going to take you backwards in our history. Um, Before our church launched, I had an awesome opportunity. I spoke at Cape Christian. Some of you guys were there that day and heard the message I gave. And I shared about how God changed my life and and about how he he was putting this calling on my wife and I to, to come here and start a church up in the Northeast Cape. And that message went out, and we were in a season of prayer Because the church that I worked for was an imaginary church at that point. We did not exist. Gulfside had not yet launched. And so we were just praying, God, send us the right people. God, put this message, put this information in front of the right people. And there was one specific night before we launched where I got a Facebook message from someone. And I normally would be asleep at at 1.30, but Anthony had woken me up, and so I was up with him. Got the Facebook message as soon as it arrived. And it was this message from someone I'd never met. And she said, Our house flooded tonight, and so we were cleaning it up, and I started to look at Facebook, and one of my friends commented on a video of you teaching, and I watched it, and God just did something in my heart. And I want to experience the change that you've experienced, and I want to be part of the church that you guys are planning. And so she started coming, and, and God began to work in her heart and her life, and when she had an opportunity to connect into a small group, she did. And she led other people into her life, and God is has been working and it's been awesome to see the way that she's grown and the way that her kids have grown. And, And this isn't any sort of huge dramatic thing, but then she just recently had a baby. And if you've had a child before, you know what it does to you afterwards. Like just surviving is hard enough, let alone keeping the little, little dude alive with you. But I mean it's just, it's tough. You're tired. Just making a meal can be so tough. And so we went and we brought her a meal. Just a simple thing. Like we, we just went visit her a little bit. We got to meet the baby. And bring her a meal. And she was so incredibly thankful for just this small thing of bringing a meal. But we wouldn't have had access to go and encourage her and and go and support her if she hadn't stepped in to a small group to let herself be known. And it might be something as fun as having a new child. It might be something as scary as a diagnosis of cancer. But there's going to be times where you need people around you. There's going to be times where someone needs you around them, but that's going to be impossible if you don't allow people into your life the way that God has designed us to be. I'm going to use Rick Warren's quote as the third point here, and he describes fellowship this way, and it's in such a challenging way. He says, real fellowship is being as committed to each other as we are to Jesus Christ. For me, that's a challenging quote because, man, our love for Christ, it, it's supposed to be unlike anything, but our love for each other is supposed to be a picture of that love. So I know that that word is true. 1 John four twenty describes it that way. If, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, it's impossible for you to love God whom you haven't seen. We have a real calling to support each other, church. And so my challenge to you as we wrap up this, this message and this series is will you take a step this week to expand your network of people in the faith? This week, will you take a step to expand your network of people in the faith? Will you invite someone else from Gulfside out for a coffee or a family over for dinner? Will you make a connection outside of church with someone that you currently don't have a connection with? I want you to do that because I believe Scripture teaches us to be closely knit together, as Paul wrote earlier in Colossians. I want you to do that because at some point they're going to need you And at some point, you're going to need them. But we have to let people in. And it starts with a step. Take the step this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we don't have to do life alone. I thank you so much that the, the apostles, they set the standard of opening up our life and doing life with someone else. Of having friends, having encouragement, having fun, having sorrow, having difficult times, and being together through it. And I pray for each person here who has struggled with feeling lonely who has struggled with social anxiety, and that this is a scary step for them, but they feel your spirit pushing them to step forward, I pray you'd give them courage and strength to take that step. Uh, I pray that as invitations go out for coffee or meal or whatever it is, that that you would just give us those strong ties together to walk through our life, encouraging one another, living the way you've asked us to live. And as we do that, we know that we're going to experience greater closeness with you, and greater strength for the obstacles that are ahead of us. I thank you for your many blessings, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, uh, during this next song, our closing song, uh, it's a song of reflection, and so just feel free um, to stay seated. And for those of you guys who call Gulfside Church, your home church, we're going to receive the tithes and offerings. If you're new here, please feel no pressure to give. It's something that we do with joy in our heart. and and it's something that's motivated by something God's done in our heart, but never by compulsion, never by pressure. So there's no pressure to give, but we're thankful for those of you guys who give. It's allowing us to push the vision uh, of Gulfside Church forward in our community. If you are new here, I would love if you'd fill out this little bottom tear-off section of the bulletin you received when you entered the room. And if you bring it to the table outside in our lobby, we have a free gift for you. Uh, We have an amazing coffee mug, some water bottles that we'd love to just give to you, and thank you for being here to visit with us today. Ushers, please come forward.